Good morning. How are you? This is Linda, my wife. I really am married. There's that. We had a little miscommunication about what she was going to do and when she was going to do it. But yeah, she's here. And hi, everybody online. Good morning. Um, I was just thinking this morning, and it's Communion Sunday. I think it's wonderful that it's Independence Day coinciding with Communion Sunday because um, God loves us so much that he wants us to be united in heart with him and with one another. And um, I just wanted to read a scripture that reminds me of that. It's in Acts 17, beginning at verse 24. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples, and human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand where they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God, and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and exist. So I'd just like to open in a brief prayer honoring this day in our nation and this day in communion with our Lord. Father, thank you so much. It's easy to take for granted the freedom of expression, the freedom of worship and deep fellowship, the freedom of travel and learning about all the different states and their uniquenesses. But you have blessed our country with those freedoms, and I know they have been bought with a price. So we thank you so much for all those who have served to preserve and establish the freedoms that we do enjoy. We thank you so much for those who are serving now pray for their families, protection for their loved ones whom are serving, and also protection in our nation that we may begin to heal and grow together in your church, Lord, in your body across the nation, and also in our societies and communities. Lord, we all struggle to figure life out, but you have placed us in this country. You have placed us in these days, and there's a purpose for that. So we rest in you, we trust you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have a couple more Sundays with you and excited about that. Um, today I have a couple of pastoral admonitions uh, that I wanted to share with you as a result of my time being here. Uh, I started on, I remember, September 1st, 2019, which seems like a long long time ago, uh, but I have experienced this church and want to share with you some things. Before I do that, Bob and Suzanne Treichler celebrated 60 years of marriage last Thursday. Well done. I told him that uh, when I grow up, I want to be like him. Yeah. And it reminded me, I shared this with him, it reminded me there's a famous Ruth Bell Graham quote. I don't know if you've heard it. 
She was the wife of Billy Graham. And somebody, because he traveled so much or something, and somebody asked her once, did you ever think about divorce? And she said, no, murder, yes, divorce, <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of spouses feel that way, especially wives, maybe. All right. So, the title of the sermon today is it, making the main thing is to keep the main things the main thing. And some of you may have heard that before. It's, it bounces around throughout Christendom. But it's important that we make the main things the main things, keep the main things the main things, and make those the main things throughout our Christian experience. And so the, the two things that I'd like to talk to you about today uh, is the first of all, what are the main things is what I'd like to share with you. There are some main things. And the second has to do with Community Covenant's uh, budget. And so the first one will take up the majority of time, and the second one will take just a little bit of time, and then we'll move into communion from that. So one of the things that I have enjoyed the most about my time here at Community Covenant Church is this diverse collection of Christian backgrounds that we enjoy here at Community Covenant Church. And um, if you could put that chart up, this is from the online survey that was taken summer, fall of 2019. And it depicts uh, this array of different backgrounds that we have here at Community Covenant Church. Uh, almost zero people had no church background at all. And then what's typically defined as evangelical and Bible-centered, about half the church. The red, if you can't see that, the red is the new people. New people have been here five years or less. Newcomers, we call them. And then overall, the people. So about 50% come from pretty typical evangelical backgrounds. Others, uh, about 15% come from other Protestant backgrounds, it might be Lutheran, it might be Anglican, it might be Episcopalian, etc. And then about 25% of the church comes out of the Catholic, uh, Catholic background. I, I, I come from that as well. But there's a lot of others that most of us probably in the room have some kind of cultural Catholic background. Um, and then about 10% of the church came out of a kind of a charismatic or uh, Pentecostal background, and then the other is minimal. And so I have come to see it as a great blessing that God is building Community Covenant Church with people from lots of different Christian backgrounds. I think that's a real upside. In fact, I think it's, it's God's doing uh, for this to happen. Uh, what we see in this, I'm going to skip a couple things. Um, there's significant diversity in our Christian faith background. It's important when that happens that we see and begin to wrestle with the distinction between biblical doctrines that are essential to the Christian faith and those that are not essential to the Christian faith. 
And as we'll see, and what I'd like to talk a little bit about, is when we speak of the essential biblical doctrines of the Christian faith, we're speaking of the doctrines related to the deity of Christ and what constitutes salvation in the Christian's life. Those are the essentials, and I want to just unpack those a little bit for us. Another way to say it, and I don't know if you've heard these terms before, if it's new, and there's some other terms. Some people talk about um, the difference between primary and secondary doctrines in the church. And a few people talk about close-fisted and open-handed doctrines in the church. You may have heard that. Uh, an example would be the difference uh, between an international border and a state border, right? In, an international border, you're in a whole different country. But in a state or territory or providence border, you're in the same country, but there's some distinctions. And that's one way to think about it or look at it. And here's, I wanted to share with you a well-regarded, well-accepted description of how we as Christians can talk about what is essential and what is not essential. All of them are important. So when I say not essential, I'm not saying not important. I'm just saying that there's some that are really, really essential. So here's the saying, and some of you will have heard this along the way in your Christian experience if you've been a believer for a while. It says, in essentials, we must have unity. We must have agreement in the essentials of the Christian doctrinal faith. In non-essentials, there is liberty to believe different, have different perspectives. And in all things, we must have charity. Or in all things, we must really love each other even when we disagree over some of these secondary doctrines. Where did this statement come from? A lot of theologians thought it came from Augustine, and others thought it was from the Puritan theologian Richard Baxter. <coughs> Excuse me. But uh, Philip Schaff, he was a, a 19th century Christian historian. He wrote a, a nine-volume history of the Christian church. Uh, and he identified who came up with this statement in, in volume seven of that, a, a guy named Rupert Mildenius, who was a German Lutheran theologian in the early 17th century. And Schaff describes this statement that I just showed you in the essentials we must have unity and non-essentials liberty and all things charity. What Schaff says about that statement in his book is that it's a watchword for Christian peacemakers. A watchword for Christian peacemakers. The first known time the phrase occurs is in a tract on Christian unity written around 1627 during the Thirty Years' War, which lasted from 1618 to 1648. And if you don't know about the Thirty Year War in Europe, I would encourage you to go online and take a look. It was an awful, awful thing, a very bloody time in European history in, in, in which religious tensions played a significant role. It's considered one of the most destructive conflicts in European history. Uh, estimates, uh, estimates of military and civilian deaths are between four and a half million and eight million people died during those 30 years. And up to about 60% of the population in some areas in Germany were, were killed as well. Uh, one aspect of the war 
was three denominations vying for dominance. Roman Catholicism, Lutheranism, and Calvinism. And so it's a very sorrowful time. And so maybe you can begin to understand why this theologian came up with this statement. Hey, folks, on the essentials, let's agree. On the non-essentials, let's have some dialogue. And even when we disagree, let's work hard to love each other. So that's where this statement came out of the season. So what are the essentials? What are the primary? What are the closed-handed doctrines of the Christian faith? I think John MacArthur summarizes it well. If you don't know that name, he's a pastor, theologian, author. It's in, he, this is what he calls it, the drivetrain of the gospel, the essentials. And this is how he describes the essentials of the Christian faith. The belief in a triune God, which includes the deity of Christ, the deity of the Holy Spirit, the deity of God the Father, the virgin birth, the sinless life of Christ, substitutionary atonement, a literal resurrection, and salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I would say that if, if you don't believe in that list of things that I just shared with you, then you're not a Christian. Those are the essential aspects of the Christian faith. Now, I, I want to add to that that I personally disagree with John MacArthur on several of his uh, theological conclusions in the non-essentials, as well as the ways and the manner in which he communicates his uh, beliefs about certain things. Yet this, I believe, is an outstanding description of the essentials of the Christian faith. And so let's take a quick look at these essentials that I just described. I think it'll be very helpful for us. And then what are the implications of that on the things that we might not agree with? I want to just spend a little bit of time on that too. But the first one is the Trinity. While the word Trinity or Trinitarian is not in the Bible, you probably know that, it's not mentioned. The concept of the Trinity is represented, represented throughout Scripture. One of the main verses, there's several, but one of the main verses would be Jeremiah, I'm sorry, Matthew 29, 18, which says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So the Trinity is clearly depicted there in that passage. It's essential. It's an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. The second one is the virgin birth. And we see this scattered throughout both Old and New Testaments. We see it in uh, Genesis 3. We see it in Isaiah 7. We certainly see it in Luke chapter 1. The virgin birth of Jesus, which is more accurately labeled uh, the, the virginal conception of Jesus, teaches that Jesus Christ was born apart from the normal process of procreation and was supernaturally conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the virgin birth is implied in the Old Testament as early as Genesis 3.15, which promised that the seed of the woman would be the victor over Satan and then is expressly um, predicted in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where it says, Behold, a virgin 
will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And then, of course, we see it in the New Testament as well. Number three, the sinless life of Christ. That's an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. Hebrews 7.26, the Bible expressly declares that Jesus was sinless throughout the course of his life. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. Uh, again, Hebrews 7.26. So our redemption rests upon the sinless life of Jesus Christ, what's called the substitutionary death of Jesus. And that brings us to the fourth one, substitutionary atonement. And we see it in 2 Corinthians 5.21. And again, I'm just giving you representative passages of this. There's, there's much more to each of these. But according to the Bible, God is holy and perfect holiness is required for us to be in the presence of God. The way I've said it in the past is, if you miss the mark, sin means missing the mark, but if you miss the mark, even by a millimeter, you've still missed the mark. And so we can't be in the presence of God. We have to be perfectly holy, perfectly holy to be in the presence of God. And that's why we need substitutionary atonement. God is holy. Perfect holiness is required to be in the presence of God. So when Jesus Christ came out of heaven, lived this perfect and sinless life, and then was crucified, Jesus makes it possible for people who have surrendered to God's grace to be declared perfectly holy and righteous in him. It's quite important to keep in mind that it's not our righteousness, but as Isaiah says, we are cloaked in his righteousness. And there's two words that people get confused about. There's the word imputed righteousness, and then there's the word imparted righteousness. And so some of us grew up in the context where we were taught that, that Jesus gives us a little bit of righteousness, then we kind of build our own righteousness, righteous resume. That's imparted righteousness, where it's, we get a little and then we build our own by being good and following the rules and doing the right things. Imputed righteousness means that it's always his righteousness and never ours. And as I said, Isaiah talks about it being a cloak. We wear his righteousness. We'll never have enough righteousness to get to heaven. We only get to heaven when we put on the cloak of Christ's righteousness, what he did, what he accomplished, and through faith in that, that gets us into the presence of God based on his perfect righteousness. I hope that makes sense. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Notice what it says here. 
He became sin for us. One of the things that I've talked about, and maybe you've heard it in other places too, but we think of the the physical suffering that Jesus went through. Uh, His suffering was like, his physical suffering was like a flea bite compared to the spiritual and emotional suffering that he went through over those couple of days. And so this is what that's talking about here. He became sin on your behalf, on my behalf. That's a big deal. That's what gets us in, is what he did. It's not what we do at all. Number five, the literal uh, resurrection of Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15, 14. And perhaps no other event in the Bible is as significant for the Christian faith as the literal resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This historical event is what separates the Christian faith from every other faith that's out there. 1 Corinthians 15, 14. And if Christ has not been raised, this is Paul speaking, if he hasn't been raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So if this didn't happen, it's all, you know, it, it doesn't matter. That's what it's saying. So that's an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. And then number six, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I've kind of already referred to this, but we're all sinners separated from God, we're all deserving of eternal punishment. You know, I talked about that word imputed righteousness, but what was also imputed to us was the sin of Adam and Eve. That was imputed to the human race in the garden. And so that's what rests on us, this imputed unrighteousness, this imputed sinful focus, selfishness, And so that's a part of what this means. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We're all deserving of eternal punishment based on this imputed sin from Adam and Eve. Jesus' death on the cross paid for the sins of humankind and now provides access to heaven and eternal relationship with God. Again, as we surrender to his supreme act of love and sacrifice on our behalf. This is grace. This is most definitely undeserved favor. So when I think of people who are not believers, I'm like, well, why wouldn't you? <laughs> you know, why wouldn't you want this for your life? It's not a question of trying to talk somebody into it let alone carrying signs and calling for people to repent. No, it's an invitation. It says, beautiful invitation. It says, you can know God, and you don't have to get it together to come to Him, to know Him. There's nothing we can do to earn God's favor or gain access to heaven apart from His grace. Here's what Jonathan Edwards I call Jonathan Edwards a local boy who made good. He was a pastor, preacher from a few hundred years ago. 
This is what he said. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. That's the only thing we bring to the table. There's nothing else that we can do. So what about the non-essentials? This is where liberty should be embraced within the church. The big C church, this church. Again, the main thing is to keep the main things the main things. What would some of the doctrinal or theological issues, some of them, uh, where two Christians or churches or denominations might differ? Here's a few. There are various views on eschatology, and that's the theology of the end times. That's eschatology, views on the end times, last things, and the distinctions are, is Jesus coming back before the great tribulation, during the great tribulation, or after the great tribulation? And people are very committed to, some people are very, very committed to their, to their views. And some, I know of one denomination that makes one particular view of this an essential, which I think is really, really dumb to do because it's not an essential. Another one would be the various views on ecclesiology. If that's a new word for you, it's just, it's just how do we do church? What's the best way to do church? Including governance. How, do we, how is the church governed? What liturgies do we want to incorporate into the life of the church, particularly on Sunday mornings? And then different beliefs about baptism. Some uh, denominations believe in baptism of infants and others believe that, you know, you need to be... Um, more adult and make your own decision or to be baptized, which is where we kind of land as a church. But there's various views of that out there. Another one would be charismatics and non-charismatics. And the theological term would be cessationists and continuationists. There's a list of gifts in Romans chapter, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 called the charismatic gifts. And there's a lot of discussion about whether or not the gifts are still for today. And so people who don't believe, people who believe that they have ceased would be called cessationists. And people who believe that they continue are called continuationists. Theologians have to have these like 10 cent words to describe things uh, just to make us think smart, you know, think that other people think we're smart. But those are some things that we have differing views on in this church and in the whole church. Another one would be differing views on creation. Uh, there's young earth, earth creationists, and there's old earth creationists. Two different views of Genesis. And then there's the role of males and females in the home, in the church, and then in society. Uh, and this is one that's currently a big, kind of a big deal in the church today. What is the role? What is the distinction of the role of men and women in the church today. A few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, we've, we had a, a, a vote of, what do we call it? Vote of affirmation for four incoming elders in our church, two of which were women. Well, they still are women. <laughs> two of which are women. <laughs> and four people in that vote could not affirm those women as elders because of their belief in a more complementarian view versus a more egalitarian view, which I think is wonderful. 
I think we should be able to vote our conscience. I think we should be able to have healthy, holy, humble dialogue when we find ourselves in disagreement regarding these secondary issues. And as the phrase said, the maxim says, in all things, charity, that we love one another, that we listen well to one another. I think this is, this is good and godly for us to be in a church where we don't agree on these secondary issues. It would be unhelpful and unwise to separate over any of these secondary issues. Because humble, studied, thoughtful, prayerful dialogue regarding these secondary issues will provoke and encourage stronger biblical literacy throughout an individual church. And that's one of the reasons that I love what God is doing here at Community Covenant Church, that he's brought people from all these different backgrounds, put them together, and says, show the world how you love one another even when you disagree about secondary issues. I think that's the call of the church, to be that kind of person. Now, the essentials, we need to be clear about those and what it takes to become a believer in Christ, to become an active, intentional follower of Christ. Some are no doubt given to more studious endeavors in the church, uh, but all people should aspire to know, to have a working knowledge of the basic biblical doctrines, especially the essentials of the Christian faith. It's worthy of a, a sermon series or two or three to be able to go over that. And also some of the more controversial uh, secondary doctrines of the Christian faith. We should know the words and wordings and what people are saying and asking and thinking about. And I think a basic understanding of those would be quite helpful in the church. Okay, there's that. Second topic I'd like to address today is the topic of financial stewardship in the church. This is yet another secondary doctrine in the church. The first thing I'd say about this is that this is the most generous church. Sorry. This is the most generous church that I've ever had the privilege of serving. So I want to start with that. It makes me tear up a bit. Uh, it's just been amazing to see the generosity in this church. Extraordinarily generous with time, energy, resources, and of course money. I've been regularly astonished. We see a need pop up and just like a duck on a June bug. <laughs> moving to meet that need. Great word picture, isn't it? Yeah. Having said that, our current budget for Community Covenant Church is $600,000 a year. That's about half of what it should be for a church this size. I want to show you another chart from that survey back in 2019. 146 survey respondents. 
the, the red is this church giving to this church, and the blue is giving to all causes. And so you have about a, we have about 11% of people who don't give anything to this church. And that's legit. You know, when people come to a church, they're reticent to give their money, and maybe they've been hurt by another church that always asks for money, et cetera. So, in fact, 11% is kind of small in terms of percentage-wise. It could be as high as 15 or 20. Um, but then we move, who gives 1% to 5% of their income to the church? And about a 38% of our church give between... One and five percent, and then six to nine percent. About twenty-two percent of our church gives um, six to nine percent of their income. And then who tithes? A ten percent tithe means ten percent. And what's the percentage of people in this church that tithe? And that would be twenty-five percent. And then it's at thirty-two percent. You know, tithe to this church and other causes. And then 11 to 15 percent, there's 4 percent of people in our church who give over and above that to the general budget at Community Covenant Church. And if you're here today or online, I, I certainly want to thank you. That is, that's courageous uh, to do that. And then n no one gives more than like 16 percent or plus. And so the, the key metric in this chart, in my opinion, is that only 25% of the survey respondents give 10% of their income to Community Covenant Church. 32% uh, give 10% of their income to all causes. But the, when you add that up, what we've got is 67% of the households at Community Covenant Church don't tithe. Uh, and so what I want, um, well, what I'd say ab about our church is that our generosity for special needs is greater than our generosity in consistent giving. Generosity for special needs, we hit it out of the park every time. Generosity and consistent giving to the general budget finances of Community Covenant Church. We've got about half the people that we need, and our budget should be about twice the size as it is. And so one of my parting admonitions for those of you who consider Community Covenant Church to be your home church that 25% of people who give 10% of their income to CCC, I think that needs to double, as I've said, to about 50% of people. I'd love it if it was more than 50% of households. And if you're part of the 67% who don't tithe to CCC, I'd like to invite you to pray about increasing your giving to this church as we begin this new season of ministry. Uh, we do have a position paper on this secondary doctrine of financial stewardship, which distinguishes between the tithe, meaning 10%, as I said, and offerings. Those are two different things in our current belief. In a nutshell, what we understand Scripture to be saying, the elders have talked about this, this isn't, this isn't just Greg speaking, is that the, that the tithe of our income goes into the storehouse, what Scripture calls the storehouse. Malachi 3.10 talks about bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. 
test me now in this. In contemporary language, what this would mean is that the storehouse is the general budget of the church that God has called us, that God has called you to be a part of. The storehouse is the general budget. And so to give our 10% into that general budget and to see everything else, whether it's missions or benevolence or everything else, that's an offering. But the tithe goes into the storehouse. Here's what I and the elders would like you to prayerfully consider. They didn't prompt me to do this, by the way. This is, this is Greg, um, a parting pastoral admonition. Joyfully giving 10% of our household income to CCC's general budget. This is what we're asking you to consider. And viewing all other giving, whether it is to missions, benevolence, as well as other causes, to be offerings over and above the tithe. That is what we, Community Covenant Church, believe. It's a secondary doctrine, not an essential, but that's what we currently believe about what Scripture is saying. If you simply and honestly cannot give 10% of your income at this time, I would ask that you would make it your aim to begin to increase your giving to at least 10% over the next few months or few years, depending on where you are financially. And as I said, we have a position paper that unpacks our theological understanding on financial stewardship. And if you'd like to see that, you can send an email to admin at communitycovenant.church or info at communitycovenantchurch.com whatever, you know it. Um, and we'll send that position paper out to you. So I wanted just to share that. Again, the most generous church that I've ever had the privilege of being a part of. And I just want you to have an awesome next season of fruitful ministry with uh, a new incoming pastor and all the good things that God has done uh, over the course of the last few years. So happy to hear that Dennis and Donna were able to be here last Sunday and that, that Josh and Katie, you know, the old and the new, wish Brandon could have been here, wish I could have been here, uh, but it was good to see that and good to be outside, good to celebrate, good as a church. By the way, could somebody bring me a communion, um, one of the communion things? I forgot to pick one up. But, um, okay, thanks. Um, what was I going to say? Sorry. Here's what I was going to say. Not very many churches get to participate in a healthy and holy transition between pastors. You get to participate in that. That is, that as I move on, Linda and I move on, Josh and Katie come in, and the joy, the process, the way you're seeing it done. In fact, Josh, he started July 1st. That's his start date. But he's going to be behind the scenes, staff and elders and other stuff, for the first month. And then his commissioning service will be August 1st, and that's when he'll start, you know, preaching and teaching and, and getting there. But to, to be able to see a pastor come in like this and just have some relationship and uh, an overlap between the old guy and the new guy, 
uh, not many churches get to see this. And so this is a joy to be able to have that. So now we're going to shift to celebrating communion together. <laughs> 